0: This idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our
1: Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers
0: debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the words we the people of the United States.
2: That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men.
1: Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld. I'm your host. I'm joined by Rob Capitolupa, my co-host, and a very special guest today, Roger Pilon. Roger holds the Cato Institute's B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies, which he's held since it was established in 1998. He joined Cato then in October 1988 as a senior fellow in, in constitutional studies and until 2019 served as director of Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, which he founded in 1989. Prior to joining Cato, Pollan held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at the Office of Personnel Management, the Department of State, and the Department of Justice, and was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. In 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with its Benjamin Franklin Award for excellence in writing on the U.S. Constitution, and in the three decades since, he has continued to keeping up that standard of excellence for all who, who enjoy his work. So we're really grateful to have you. Thanks for joining the show.
0: Good to be with you.
1: Roger, you know, we, we, we've gotten to know each other through, through the common sense side and other organizations, but uh, one of those organizations that, that you're kind of affiliated with and do work with is the Jewish Policy Center, and you recently wrote a, a piece on the moral foundations of America, and I think we're going to just use that as a departure point for the rest of our conversation here, but, but maybe for, for those who haven't seen it, you might want to talk about what you wrote about and, and what your argument is related to, to kind of moral foundations of this country and, and the kinds of natural rights and unenumerated rights that are implicit in our system of government.
0: Sure. I was uh, invited to uh, give the lead article for a symposium in their in-focus magazine on what makes America, America. And I opened that uh, article by saying that what makes America, America um, more importantly and consequentially than anything else was that uh, we constituted ourselves on sound moral, political, and legal principles that were instituted in the uh, Constitution, their origins being in the Declaration of Independence, and as corrected by the Civil War Amendments.
1: So I, I think that you have a very unique perspective on where American rights come from, and it's one that isn't shared by everyone in the conservative legal movement. You recently wrote a letter in the Wall Street Journal critiquing Judge Raymond Cathledge's uh, review of Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick's new book. There you lay out, I think, pretty comprehensively that, that you believe that certain rights are natural and they aren't created or, or designated by the Constitution, but rather pre-exist the political order of the United States. Do you, do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit more maybe and, and help explain where you're coming from?
0: Uh, Sure. That uh, Wall Street Journal um, letter, long letter, which was followed by a much longer piece at Cato at Liberty laying out a theory of judicial protection of unenumerated rights, critiqued Judge Catheridge by virtue of his clinging to a Borkian vision of the Constitution, which is to say a post-New Deal Constitution. Uh, which is not Madison's Constitution, as corrected by Lincoln and the 39th Congress with the Civil War amendments. It is FDR's Constitution, pure legal positivism, and it is a reflection of the um, Constitutional Revolution of 1937, which uh, eviscerated the Doctrine of Enumerated Powers, 1938, Caroline Products, which gave us a bifurcated theory of judicial review and a bifurcated theory of rights, and then in 1943, the jettison of the non-delegation doctrine, all of that in order to make the world safe for the New Deal vision. Now, you asked me to talk about the Natural Rights Foundation, which I take to be the true foundation of the Constitution. That was set forth, first of all, in outline form at least, uh, in the Declaration, with the appeal to the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now, that is not an appeal to theological foundations. As the second paragraph begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident truths are those of reason, uh, the idea that there is a higher law of right and wrong from which to criticize the actual or positive law Uh, at any point in time, is nothing extraordinary. It comes from antiquity, we see it in Plato, we see it in Aristotle, we certainly see it in the Stoics, and it's implicit in the uh, Roman law. Uh, But it's brought out very clearly in uh, the evolution of the common law from the uh, third quarter of the 12th century uh, under Henry II, Uh, over the next 500 years, Courts were adjudicating cases brought to them by, uh, brought before the court by ordinary individuals against their neighbors, and later on against the uh, crown. And all of that was drawn together, of course, by John Locke and the theory of natural rights. So when you ask uh, how it is that uh, I cling to a natural rights tradition, it's because I've done a lot of work, starting with my doctoral dissertation at Chicago on the theory of rights and in particular on the epistemological foundations of the theory of rights such that you can show that when you deny having certain rights, you end up contradicting yourself and when you deny those rights for others, you also end up contradicting yourself. You're in a performative contradiction as philosophers say and that's the ultimate foundation in reason of the idea that we have natural rights, in particular, natural rights to freedom. And then you start to explicate that over the whole range of human affairs. And that is what the theory of rights is, what it amounts to, as it was understood by the founding generation, and then incorporated implicitly in the constitution, which was designed to secure those rights as the Declaration makes clear. So, in short, the Declaration gives us a moral, political, and legal theory that the framers, 11 years later, repaired to when they drafted the Constitution as the means by which to secure that vision.
2: So, I think that conversations about natural rights have been re-emerging within conservative legal thought especially through the common good constitutionalism movement. And I think the problem that we get when we try to impart natural rights jurisprudence into the legal framework is that people disagree fundamentally on what the natural law states. I think we are not Platonic philosophers in every case and we have a difficult time trying to apprehend the good and so why is your conception of natural law pointing to liberty superior to the vermulian conception saying that the natural law points to order and a much more powerful state restraining individual liberty
0: Good question, Rob. And the answer is contained implicitly in the uniquely American right to the pursuit of happiness. Because what you've got in that notion is an implicit distinction between rights and values. They're fundamentally different moral notions. You have an objective right, to pursue your subjective values as you work your way through life. And the reason you want to draw that distinction is because it enables you to address a problem that we have inherited since antiquity between two fundamental approaches to justification, namely skepticism and dogmatism. Skepticism, moral skepticism, holds that there are no moral truths, or if there are, we can't know them. Dogmatism holds that there are moral truths pertaining to every aspect of the human condition, what you can put in your bodies, what you can smoke, uh, what the roles of women shall be, and so on and so forth. The problem with those two schools is that skepticism gives you no morality, nothing to get hold of. Dogmatism gives you no liberty, so if you can distinguish between objective rights on one hand, and therefore have at least some moral foundations that are justifiable with respect to at least some aspects of our rights, and if you can also have liberty as against the dogmatist, then you have a way of charting a course between these two unattractive alternatives. So, that means you've got to do the epistemological work to show, as I just spoke about it, how it is that certain claims about rights, the denial of which, will lead you to self-contradiction. It is essentially drawing upon the methodology of Aristotle in Book 4, Chapter 4 of the Metaphysics where he showed that the denial of the law of contradiction involves you in denying that and not its contradiction and therefore implicitly affirming the law of non-contradiction. In other words, you cannot deny it without affirming it. Otherwise, you're in a performative contradiction. That is the kind of methodology you bring to the theory of rights by drawing out the normative structure of human action. I'm not gonna go into the deep epistemology here, but that's the strategy of the matter. And when you do that, you can show that we have fundamental rights to liberty, to live and let live, to non-interference, to not have what is ours taken from us, what is ours free and clear. And that gets you going on the theory of rights. And it's all grounded in pure reason. But sooner or later, you run out of principles of pure reason, and then you have to turn to values to flesh out the theory more fully. And that's when you get into the realm where you have reasonable differences between reasonable people. And so, what you want to do is be able to show absolutely that there are rights against uh, murder, rape, and robbery. Whereas to say the rights that you have in other contexts like nuisance, uh, remedies, uh, risk, and enforcement uh, are areas where reasonable people can have reasonable differences. And once you draw those kinds of distinctions, you can make sense of the moral world as to what is very clear about which we cannot disagree except on pain of self-contradiction, and what is open for dispute. And once you draw that kind of distinction, you're on your way to a principle moral theory, and that was implicit in so much of what the classical liberals and the old common law judges discovered. And that has been lost in the 20th century with the progressive era and its uh, turn to statutory law as opposed to the old common law, judge-made law, which understood these fundamental principles. Now, I realize I've just outlined a huge amount there. It's all in the book that I'm working on right now, but that's what a summary of some uh, 50,000 words comes to. We haven't got to I trust for 50,000 words here.
2: I'd like to go off of the point that you just made about the rise of statutory law and the fall of common law. Um, Professor Guido Acalabrese, of course, has his famous book on this. And after reading that book, I've been very interested in the question of democratic legitimacy as related to common law. So what would you say to the criticism that judge-made law is illegitimate? It is an unelected judge trying to find law, but what we really know that they're doing is that they're just making law, whereas deferring to the positive law of a legislature actually is more democratically accountable because they are an elected body, they face public scrutiny, they don't have life tenure. And so it's more democratic to have a positivist system rather than a common law or natural law reason system. What do you think about that? Not much.
0: And the reason is uh, because democracy is an interesting um, theory. Uh, Democracy is a declarative theory. It is not a justificatory theory. Will alone does not justify saying it so, making it so is not a theory of legitimacy unless it is rooted in the kind of epistemological points that I made a moment ago whereby having to say it so makes it so. In other words, having to say it so, otherwise you're in a self-contradiction. And there's the crucial distinction. Now, to get back to your point, Democracy, the the framers were not small-D Democrats. They feared democracy almost as much as they feared the king. And for good reason. Because democracy invariably, invariably reduces to majorities and minorities. And if you're working with a consent theory of legitimacy, obviously you won't get it. And so that's why one turns to a reason-based theory of legitimacy. However, you still have to turn to a consent theory in those line-drawing cases that I mentioned a little bit ago. Nuisance, risk, remedies, and enforcement. How much uh, risk can you put your neighbor to? How much noise can you make before you violate his rights? That's where reasonable people would reasonably disagree. And therefore, you're going to turn to such things as reasonable man standards, uh, law and efficiency, efficiency, uh, efficiency, and so on and so forth. But uh, to get back to your question, democracy, which is what we turned to after the New Deal Constitutional Revolution, uh, until we turn to the elites on the court invoking uh, evolving social values as they saw them, democracy is a good declaratory theory with respect to the positive law, it's not a justificatory theory. And therefore, um, the founders understood that there were two foundations of legitimacy when they wrote in the Declaration that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving the just powers from the consent of the governed. So notice there are two foundations of legitimacy reason with respect to the pre existing rights and consent with respect to the means necessary to secure those pre existing rights. So what we get from the Declaration and from the Constitution is the moral world first, the political legal world second, as a means to secure that moral world. But that moral world is grounded to a large extent on reason, not on will except in those areas that I mentioned just a moment ago. And once you order things that way, then you've got a systematic approach that enables you to set forth the moral, political, and legal foundations of a political entity. And that is what the desideratum of the founding era was, to set forth to a candid world as they said the natural rights foundations now notice to come back to a point you asked about rob i'm not talking about natural law there is a important there's an important difference between natural law and natural rights natural law entails a more or less thick theory of the good natural rights theory does not natural law theory is Uh, design is drawn from a conception of uh, man and what is good for man, and it is designed primarily for a lawgiver to hand down the law. Natural rights theories comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. It leaves it to the individual to decide what is good for him in his subjective judgment. Uh, It does not carry forth with a a theory of good, certainly not an objective theory of good, because values are inherently objective. And so we come back to a point that I made a few minutes ago, the fundamental difference between rights and values, they come from different domains of morality. Rights are justified claims to stand in a relationship with some other person or persons such that that person has a correlative obligation to do or not do some particular thing. Values are certain conative uh attitudes you have to various states of affairs in the world That's a beautiful sunset. I enjoy friendship etc cetera, etc cetera. and people have different values and so unless you if you conflate the two, then you're going to very quickly get into a place where people disagree about their values, understandably. And that's why the natural law people have run into problems because, as you said, people disagree about all of this. Yes, that's why you have to do the real work and sort these issues out.
1: You were talking a lot about things that I think are really important to to young legal minds. And as you were both speaking, it reminded me of the Churchill line about democracy that is so famous, Mm -hmm. but so apt, which is, Churchill once said, uh, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all other forms of government tried from time to time. And I I think that's reflective of of how Churchill thought, but also it sounds like how the founders were were thinking. And,
0: And it's important to recognize the limits of democracy, which the founding generation, as I said earlier, Understood. Don't get me wrong. I'm in favor of democracy as opposed to the other uh, systems. But the wh- whole idea of the Constitution was to limit what was available for government to do. That's what the doctrine of enumerated powers is all about. And the Tenth Amendment is, all, is what it's all about. The power is delegated to the United States by the Constitution. Nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively, or the people. In other words, Congress has only 18 enumerated ends or or powers that are available to it. The rest belong to the states or to neither level of government, never having been given to either level of government. Um, I mean, you look at the at the Federalist Papers, and what do you see? They're arguing against the, the anti-federalists, right? The anti-federalists said this new constitution gives the government too much power. What did the federalists say? No, it doesn't. Here are all the checks and balances that we put forward to restrain government. In other words, you got two schools there, the limited government folks, the federalists, and the even more limited government folks, the anti-federalists. There wasn't a socialist in the bunch. And that's why the New Deal constitutional revolution was absolutely wrong from beginning to the end. In other words, you, you move from a presumption against government because you can never really satisfy that consent requirement, right? To a presumption for government with the burden now upon the individual to explain why it is that he shouldn't come under that burden. And that brings us to unenumerated rights, as luck would have it.
1: And I think one thing that gets really interesting if you plug one important aspect of American constitutional doctrine into that particular view is judicial review. And I think judicial review has has existed for the last two centuries with differing – depending on how you look at it, let me put it this way. Some might see judicial review as the overreach of elites (laughs) – against the duly elected government of the people in certain cases. Uh, that's generally a view that might be shared by those who say things like judicial review was created out of nowhere in Marbury v. Madison and, and was not a part of our constitutional structure. Others, and, and you know, maybe you're sympathetic to this in, to some degree, see judicial review historically as a bulwark against an overreaching legislature that goes beyond its enumerated rights.
0: Absolutely. In, in fact, um, We can go back to Dr. Bonham's case in 1610, where we had uh, early indication, some say it was dicta, but I don't think it was. I think it was quite serious. And the idea of judicial review is nothing more than the idea of a written constitution. If you have a written constitution, then you have to figure out what it says in the case or controversy that comes before a court. And so all Marbury v. Madison did, if you want to look at it that way, was make explicit what was already implicit in a written constitution. Now, shall we get over to the unenumerated rights issue, which I'm dying to do?
1: Yeah, that, 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 that's the, the <laughs> next question is, is, is what is a judge's role or, yeah. or how should they go about executing on that premise?
0: Well, they, they, they botched up so much uh, even with enumerated rights, that it's hardly surprising that they don't get it right on uh, on the unenumerated rights. But here, we are, here, here it is in a nutshell. This issue has come to a head, well, it came to a head early on with the passage of the 14th Amendment, the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And then five years later, the uh, evisceration of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which was meant to be the principal fount of rights under the 14th Amendment. And so uh, the court thereafter would try to do under the less substantive due process clause what was meant to be done under the more substantive Privileges or Immunities Clause, going back to Corfield v. Coriel in 1823. Well, it's done a uneven job of it right up to the present time. But things started coming to a head in the 20th century with the rise of substantive due process, so-called, during this period. Uh, For conservatives, it was the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that that exercised them so much. When the Warren and Burger courts were, uh, and not a moment too soon, finding rights that they hadn't found before, starting with uh, the overturning of Plessy v. Ferguson, and uh, in the civil rights uh, cases, as well as the criminal uh, cases, uh, especially involving um, procedure, criminal procedure. But they were also finding rights that were nowhere to be found, even among our unenumerated rights. And that led to a conservative backlash. Uh, Alexander Bickel from Yale was in the forefront of this. Uh, he is the one who taught uh, Robert Bork his constitutionalism. Interestingly, and um, Bork, of course, became an icon among the conservatives, uh, as did uh, Antonin Scalia, and both of them were dismissive toward the uh, toward the Declaration of Independence. Scalia called it philosophizing. Uh, Bork, in fact, I will read you from Bork his view of the Declaration of Independence. This will be of interest to your uh, listeners. Uh, This is from Slouching Towards Gomorrah. The rigging phrases of the Declaration, Bork wrote, are hardly useful, indeed may be pernicious, if taken, as they commonly are, as a guide to action, governmental or private. There's Bork on the Declaration of Independence. Now, his view was that in wide areas, majorities are entitled to rule simply because they are majorities. Nevertheless, in some areas, minorities must be free of a a majority rule. Well, that gets Madison exactly backwards. Madison stood for the idea that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free because they're born free. Nevertheless, in some areas, Majorities are entitled to rule because we have authorized them to rule. So, in other words, once again, just as the Declaration makes it clear, we start with individual liberty and we bring government into the picture in order to secure that liberty and to do the few of the things that we have authorized it to do. So, now to get back to the unenumerated rights issue. When the um, conservatives reacted to that, they essentially said, they, they called on the court to secure only those rights that are fairly clearly in the Constitution, in other words, enumerated rights, because they feared that if judges were to, were to find unenumerated rights, it would be just a, a prescription for judicial mischief and judicial activism. Well, so eventually, though, they had to come up with some explanation of how it is that under substantive due process, we could find unenumerated rights. So in 1997, in Washington v. Glucksburg, Chief Justice Rehnquist came up with the idea that we can uh, find these rights if they are deeply rooted in the nation's history and essential for ordered liberty. The problem with that is that if they're deeply rooted in the nation's history, they're probably already protected. And if they're not, they probably will not get protected. It was a pure positive law theory of the uh, legitimacy of unenumerated rights. And we're talking here about cases running, if I dare, may I dare say, from Lochner to Lawrence. In other words, uh, Griswold, the right to uh, sell and use Contraceptives. We're talking about Lawrence v. Texas, the right of, of two gay men to engage in whatever sexual practices they want in the privacy of their own home, Obergefell, right of same-sex marriage, a Loving uh, v. Virginia, the right to marry someone of a different race, all of these cases. Now, what the conservatives are up against is this, and it comes right out very clearly in the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision, where Alito correctly says but look abortion is different from all these other cases why because there is a live question as to whether the statute uh, whether the uh, the issue involves the rights of another person namely the unborn child about which reasonable people can have reasonable differences about where to draw the line some people will draw it right up near uh, birth uh, we hope not too many would do that, but others right at the moment of conception. But most people, as we know from the polls, would draw a line somewhere along, along that nine-month uh, spectrum. And so he said, this is different from the others. Therefore, because it is a line-drawing matter, it goes to the uh, people in their states, because we're talking about criminal law issues here. It goes to the people in their states to draw those lines. And so, if this is different from Griswold, from Lawrence v. Texas, etc., then we have to have some uh, notion of it. And here's the problem for conservatives like uh, Alito. They turn to Glucksburg, which is no answer deeply rooted in the nation's history. There is a better uh, way to approach these matters. And here it is. You start with a plaintiff coming into court, making a case that the statute in question violates a liberty that he has, a liberty to sell and use contraceptives, a liberty to marry someone he loves, and so forth. And then the burden shifts to the state to show how it is that under its police power, which is designed mainly to secure rights, the statute in question secures rights. Whose rights? If I sell you contraceptives and you use them, whose rights are being protected by that statute? If I marry someone that I love who is of the same sex, whose rights is the law that criminalizes that act, protecting. The state would be hard pressed in these cases to come up with rights the statute is protecting. Indeed, go back to Pierce v. Society of Sisters, 1925, the challenge to the Oregon statute that required parents to send their children to governmental schools. Whose rights are being protected by a statute like that? Go back, dare I say, to Lochner v. New York. Whose rights were being protected by that sweetheart suit? Certainly not the workers in Lochner's bakery who wanted to work those hours. They were sleeping in the bakery while the bread was being cooked. And so... Again, in all of these cases, the state is going to be out of court by being unable to make a credible case. So step back and what have you done now? You've looked at the picture in the proper theoretical way. You're not working with a presumption of government and a requirement of the individual to find his right in the Constitution you're working with a presumption that is the true presumption of the Constitution namely a presumption for liberty and against government whereby if a person makes out a credible prima facie case that a statute violates his liberty then you turn to the government to show how it is that its statute under the police power is protecting anyone's rights. Their failure to do so means the individual wins. Freedom wins.
2: So your burden-shifting framework there appears to be premised on this idea that the 10th Amendment was primarily purposed for protecting individual liberties. And in Corfield v. Aquariel, the case that uh, you mentioned where we first see the outline of what we mean by privileges or immunities. Justice Washington says that we have these fundamental rights subject nevertheless to such restraints as the government may justly prescribe for the general good of the whole. And I interpret that as suggesting that the 10th Amendment police power not only is to secure individual rights, but is also to allow the states to have some flexibility in passing laws on social issues in the manner that they think further the common good. So one example that immediately came to mind when you were given, uh, when you were giving your framework was the famous Massachusetts v. Jacobson case, where the state wanted to have mandatory vaccines. This was back, I think, in the 1910s. And that was upheld under the police power. So on the one hand, I think that under your framework, Jacobson would fail because it clearly is a violation of individual liberty. It seems like it's a great infringement upon rights. But on the other hand, the government may very well think that having that invasion on liberty is uh, for the general good of the whole. So how do you think the police power can be balanced with a regime that tries to effectuate a more libertarian viewpoint of unenumerated rights?
0: Well, the short answer to your long question, Rob, is this. The example you gave is a paradigmatic line-drawing example, just like the others that we talked about before. And indeed, this is a case where the common good comes to the fore because reasonable people can have reasonable differences about how to deal with matters of the kind that you mentioned. Uh, Pandemic situations fall into this category, very clearly. But my approach springs as much from the Ninth Amendment as from the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment goes back to the preamble, which says, we the people, for the purposes listed, do ordain and establish this constitution. So the preamble, just like the Declaration, puts us right back in state of nature theory. All power starts with the people, They bring the government into being. They empower it, such as they do. The government does not give us our rights. We already have our rights, our natural rights, through the exercise of which we bring government into being and empower it. So that's the preamble in conjunction with the Tenth Amendment. Now the Ninth Amendment, is it reads, the the enumeration of the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Notice retained by the people. You cannot retain what you don't first have to be retained. They were alluding there to the natural rights that we never gave up when we left the state of nature and entered the state of civil society with government. So it's important to remember what has long been forgotten, that the whole theory of legitimacy for the Constitution is rooted in state-of-nature theory, which stands for the idea that you start the justificatory process with a state of affairs without government because you're trying to show, in such a world, how it is that we can bring a legitimate government, legitimately uh, into power, with legitimate powers. And you can't start with a government because you will then be begging the question. You'll be arguing in a circle. So you have to start without government and in slow, methodical steps, move carefully to a more um, lifelike world that we recognize. But to get now to the Ninth Amendment, the history that led to the Ninth Amendment is important because it tells us a lot about what the Founders were thinking. During the last few days of the convention, Constitutional Convention, and certainly during the state ratification uh, debates, it became clear that a Bill of Rights would have to be added or the Constitution would not be ratified. But there were objections to a Bill of Rights. Wilson, Hamilton, and others raised two main objections. First of all, you can't enumerate all of our rights. We have an infinite number of rights. Secondly, because you cannot, the failure to do so will be read by ordinary principles of legal construction as implying that those members of the category, in contradistinction from those that are enumerated, are not meant to be protected. So it was for that reason that they wrote the Ninth Amendment to make it clear that rights both enumerated and unenumerated were not to be denied or despaired. And so when we look at the history of the Ninth Amendment, quite apart from its text, you come to the conclusion that those originalists who are, first of all, textualists, cannot ignore the Ninth Amendment as if we didn't know what it meant, as if it were under an inkblot, as Bork put it, nor can they ignore the privileges or immunities clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, as Scalia did in the McDonald case out of Chicago, the Second Amendment case, as applied to the states. And so, Let's call them fair-weather originalists. If you're going to be an originalist, you've got to make sense of the Ninth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment Privileges or Immunities Clause.
2: And so at at what level of generality, then, should we try to make that sense? I mean, the right to gay marriage did not seem like it was prevalent around the time of the Fourteenth Amendment's adoption the right to abortion, obviously, even by the, the time that Roe was heard, uh, arguably 49 states did not recognize that right and directly criminalized it. So in in terms of applying this framework to more modern conceptions of rights, how general should we go and to what extent does history have to restrain the finding of these unenumerated rights that may have only developed within the past 50 years?
0: Well, it's interesting that you have chosen two line-drawing cases again. The abortion case, where we're left with the need to address the people at both ends of the nine-month Continuum and do so with reference to the greater portion of the people who are somewhere between those two ends. And also, with the, um, you you talked about the gay marriage case, which is not a line drawing case. And so uh, that's why it's important to draw that distinction because it will enable us to say that laws against gay marriage were. Always wrong, just as laws criminalizing same-sex sodomy were always wrong, just like laws protecting slavery or Jim Crow in the South were always wrong, notwithstanding Plessy v. Ferguson. Whereas with the abortion case, it turns out that if it is the case that the unborn child does have rights at some point, as determined by most people, or more people than not, let's say, you have different cases. That was a case whereby the court was wrong for stepping into an issue that properly belonged to the states, as was implicit in the comments of no less than Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her Madison lecture in 1992 at NYU Law School, where she said, if we had not entered the case, we would not have had 20 years of endless battles about this single case, if we had left it instead to the states that were already liberalizing their law, that were drawing the lines that properly belonged to the states to draw. I'm elaborating on what she said in order to bring out the theory of the matter. Roe v. Wade was different than the statutes, uh, the criminalization statutes in the abortion, I mean, in the Obergefell case. So you see, the history is not dispositive in all, or indeed in many, many cases. Uh, The theory is dispositive. And that's why it's so important to get the theory right. And that's what is so mistaken about the progressive era post-New Deal world, is because they're working with a pure democratic theory, which is no theory of legitimacy, it's purely a declarative theory. The law is whatever the majority says it is. That works in line drawing cases. It doesn't work in cases where there is a right clearly before you.
1: One of the things that I think I admire most about your work and about your, your philosophy is that it's actually quite self-evident. And I think a lot of people who who hear what you have to say actually. Are dismissive of the idea that there's a natural rights conception in American law, but they're wrong in that if you step back and ask what are natu- what are the natural rights what, in a Lockean conception, well there's a right to improve property, and well you have you have a right in terms of uh, obligation or duty that you can hold against somebody else to make agreements. You have a right to. Uh, redress when somebody aggrieves you and you have you have a right to to pursue some kind of um, measures against that. And, and if you if you pull up, you realize, and you've said this in in, in different forms and in, in writing and in speeches, that those are basically to differing degrees, the four main areas of the common law in American law today. It's contracts, it's property, it's torts, it's remedies. We already have that. That is what currently exists. And maybe some of the confusion among young law students, is the way that the American system has developed is distinct from the British system, which brings that aspect more clearly into relief. When courts sit in equity or in law, uh, in the British system, you have a system that leads to barristers and solicitors. And they're very different, they're distinct, and it's pretty obvious to tell. And the American system, because we do both at the same time, I think it's somewhat uh, occluded from, from the casual observer that these are things that actually are already part of the system and have been since the Constitution and even, even before. So, you know, I, I, I think it's worth teasing that point out a little bit. Um, but on that score, I, I think one important final question for us that we have for you, because you've had such a long career and, and so many experiences in the law both in, in the White House and in administrations, at a major public policy think tank, and and in all kinds of research and writing. Because so many of our listeners are, are young law students or young lawyers, do you have any advice for what you see in the legal profession today, how to live a rewarding, meaningful life, whether it's in litigation or in thought? What kind of things students should be doing in law school and, and what they should be doing as soon as they graduate?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, okay, you, you packed a lot into that uh, soliloquy. I won't get into the can of worms that is equity Uh, The legal sense of equity, not the modern bastard sense of equity, inclusion, diversity, and things that I'm sure are of little interest up at Yale Law School. No, if, if there's any point I want to leave with your audience, it is the importance of theory for getting clear about these matters. Positive law is nothing but will theory of law. Uh, Scalia said "Well, positive laws essentially replaced common law. The kinds of areas you uh, mentioned, uh, property, torts, contracts, procedure. Those are the fundamental principles and it's so important to get clear about those before you turn to public law, uh, to understand those areas of private law. Even though in those areas we have uh, unbelievable inroads of modern views, uh, deep pocket theories, in torts for example which which have no place in a properly understood theory of torts but now to get back to the other point the, the last point that you raised career look i've had a, a long uh, one would say storied and uh, a very diverse career uh, i mean from being a rock and roll player Getting my starting my school's first rock and roll band, calling square dancers, being a ski bum, a aluminum siding salesman, a insurance uh, salesman, uh, and uh, a New York cab driver. That's how I put myself through Columbia. A great books of the Western World uh, encyclopedia salesman, uh, a professional gambler at the track, at least until my luck went bad, uh, and and several other things uh, that I've done and indeed went back to college uh, at Columbia uh, as a sophomore when I was 25. Went back with a vengeance, because then I did my, finished my BA, did an MA, PhD, and JD. So, um, and then I served, as, as you mentioned, for eight years in the Reagan administration before joining Cato. So the th- advice I can give is to uh, be open to opportunities as George Washington Plunkett of Tammany Hall said, uh, "I seen me opportunities, and I took them and uh, that's the the attitude you want to have because the law equips you to do so many things, and uh you want to stay open to that. obviously, you want to keep your nose clean and do as best you can, but a very constricted approach, which seems to be necessary if you want to be a clerk on the Supreme Court and yourself get on the Supreme Court, is to keep your nose clean the whole of your career and go in lockstep from law school to clerkship to big law, uh, back to clerkship, and and then to academia, uh, perhaps, and then finally to appointment to the Supreme Court. Well, uh, that's all well and good, but the odds of you're making that. Uh, are pretty long and so that's why, uh, as I said, you want to stay open because you never can tell what's going to come your way and I, my life uh, course addresses that in spades. Uh, I never could have guessed when uh, I was in high school that uh, it would take the course that is taken never in a million years and you guys are all very young. And you have no idea what the world will look like ahead of you. It's a, it's a very perilous time that we're in right now. I mean, this election that's coming up is extraordinarily important because we have forces. I hardly need to tell you folks at Yale Law School. We have forces at play today, especially in the legal community, that are diametrically imposed to a serious and well-grounded rule of law and let's be very clear about that because the barbarians are always at the gates or as President Reagan put it we're only one generation away from losing all that we have inherited and to get back to where we opened that essay on the moral foundations of America makes it clear that we are sui generis. We constituted ourselves at a point in time where we were very fortunate that the people who did that, the men who did that, had a grasp of fundamental principles that I regret to say too many people today, especially in the legal professoriate, have either lost Sight of or our outright hostility toward. And that's a very real problem.
1: Roger, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been such a a great conversation, and I I think I can speak for everybody who listens and who's in Yale FedSoc to thank you for taking the time because because it means the world to us.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, You know, if you've got a slot up there at Yale Law for a FedSoc event, I'd be glad to present all of this in a systematic way. It is good meeting you, Rob.
2: Thank you. It's been it's been great to speak with you, and we uh, hope to have you up to New Haven sometime soon. Okay.